0: Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon Producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Since we started One True Podcast, we have mentioned the name of Hemingway's first wife, Hadley Richardson, countless times. It seems like most episodes refer to her in one way or another. We have discussed their time in Paris together, the lost manuscripts, the transition from Hadley to his second wife, Pauline, and the way Hemingway evokes his first marriage in A Feast*. But today's show is the first one we are devoting entirely to Hadley, and we are honored to have the perfect guest to help us in our exploration, the author whose definitive biography of Hadley is required reading. Joya Diliberto is a widely published journalist and author of seven books, three historical novels and four biographies, and a play, including Coco at the Ritz about Coco Chanel, A Useful Woman about Jane Adams, and... The motivation behind today's episode, Paris without end: the true story of Hemingway's first wife, Joya Diliberto. Welcome to One True Podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: Well, it's so great to have you join us. I guess I'm wondering about where Hadley fits in to all the women that you write about. What attracted you to write about her? Did you go? Did you? Uh, enter that topic through Hemingway or through Hadley herself?
1: Through Hemingway, it was my second book. And as you mentioned, I've written all these books since then. And I read A Feast on my honeymoon um, on the plane to Paris, actually, a long time ago, 40 years ago. And I was struck by what a beautiful love story it was, especially because it ended so sadly. It was so poignant. And I discovered that nothing really had been known about her, that the men who wrote about Hemingway gave her short shrift and just portrayed her as a doormat or as the typical first wife whom he discarded. And I started reading his letters and her letters in light of their relationship. And it struck me that she was a profound influence on him as he was creating his style. Um, but what she has in common with my other subjects, which I really didn't see at the time, but I do now after having written so much over such a long period of time, is that all my subjects are women, first of all, and they all in some way in their personalities and accomplishments and even flaws epitomize the spirit of their time. So that she and Hemingway and their love story is the quintessential jazz age story of hopes and dreams that were dashed. And that's primarily how I see it fitting into my work, which is which ranges from, as you mentioned, Jane Addams, who was a reformer, and Coco Chanel, who was a fashion designer and who was part of the modernist movement in the arts, and Hadley, who was a writer's wife.
0: Well, there's so much in that response when you're saying that the typical conception of Hadley is that she was a doormat or subservient or what have you. Where do you find the line between that was how women acted in that time? That was their expected role versus that was Hadley's personality. How do you sort out the times, as you put it, or the person that you're writing a biography about?
1: it's always a danger to impose current standards of behavior on the past. If you're writing about somebody from a remote time, you have to consider their behavior in terms of the context of the time. So, But this was, my book is so intimate because it focuses so tightly on this relationship. And I I think in Hadley's case, her passive aggressiveness, which was a not a very attractive quality in my mind which made her kind of a disappointment from a modern feminist point of view didn't diminish my fondness for her or even my admiration for her and i saw in her letters and also in these tapes that i had of her um talking about her marriage to hemingway and her life and her girlhood i saw somebody whom i ad- admired a great deal even though she was perhaps a disappointment from a modern feminist point of view
0: i mean would you say that one thing that characterizes her behavior let's just say in paris and we'll we'll start from the beginning and and then and work our way back but i mean if she's deferential to hemingway mm-hmm. is that because does that have something to do with gender does it have something to do with its historical context or is it i'm married to this colossally talented success, uh, going to be successful writer. Uh, this is the prudent thing to do at this point. This is only reasonable to defer, uh, my, my needs to, to Ernest Hemingway.
1: Well, he wasn't Ernest Hemingway when she first met him and married him. He was just a kid and he was eight years right. younger than she was. So the, the dynamic between husbands and wives in those days was that the man was the ruler of the roost, but that didn't apply in Hadley's family and it didn't apply in Ernest's family. Right. Course, both the fathers ended up killing themselves. So I don't know what that says yeah. uh, about, about traditional gender roles being upended. Uh, but I, I didn't see her, um, I, I really didn't see her in terms of somebody of her time. I saw her as somebody timeless. And I think that that helped me write about her in a way that that still resonates today. I didn't see her and their relationship necessarily as being a dated relationship, but I also think she was in a different position from the subsequent Hemingway wives who did sign on when he was famous. That's right. And I think if you sign on with someone who's famous, look at Picasso's wives, look at the wives of the multiple wives of any great artist, famous man, you're you're not you know you're you're signing on for something that's not going to be a normal relationship.
0: Sure, the, you, you mentioned the one striking commonality between Ernest and Hadley is that uh, they had they they come from a particular home where their fathers committed suicide. Mm-hmm. What about uh, and they're also obviously from the Midwest. What what else about their families, their family lives, was either struck you as being important in that it was different or important that it was the same
1: well they grew up in the Midwest, she said and um when the victorian values were still in force so it was before freud it was before world war one it was before the great upheavals that were that didn't happen until after world war one so they they were Pre-modern in that sense, in their in their growing up, and they both had mothers who were ball busters. I think Hemingway said that that you couldn't, if there was an all-time bitch show between Hadley's mother and his mother, you couldn't declare a winner. <laughs> um, so they, they did not admire. They must have loved their mothers because they were their mothers, but they did not admire their mothers. So they and the mothers were really difficult characters. I think Hadley's mother was worse than Ernest's mother, actually.
0: But can you describe the way Hadley's mother treated her as opposed to her siblings? It seemed like there was something that was really emotionally wrenching about Hadley's upbringing that kind of stayed with her, her whole, even as an adult.
1: Yeah. Her mother favored her older sister's And especially her immediate older sister, the eldest sister was killed in a fire tragically when she was pregnant. She was married and had already had a uh, a child when Hadley was in college. But the mother was very, very anti sex and wrote some screeds against sexual relations between husbands and wives and that sex should only be for the procreation of children. She had some really Crackpot ideas. So she had crackpot ideas about Hadley too, that Hadley was weak and was never going to amount to anything. And she put all her hopes and faith in her sister, Fanny, and treated Hadley like an invalid who should never have a life outside of her bedroom in St.
0: Louis. How did that manifest itself as Hadley? You know, how did that kind of she absorbed that into her personality that kind of friction at home
1: well i think that she it it contributed to her passivity she didn't until she went to college she didn't leave st louis she during the war she she volunteered at the li- local library she had some friends After her mother died, they took in boarders to the house. But her world was as narrow as a 19th century corset and as constrained. So she had a very, very narrow background growing up. And then when she met Hemingway, of course, as she described it, it was a great explosion into life.
0: How did she meet Hemingway?
1: At a party in Chicago.
0: And so... Y- your suggestion is that when she met Hemingway, Hemingway, in one sense, was a ticket out of this sort of imprisoned, confined existence where it, he was a man of action. He was exciting. They would go to Europe together and on all this. And that was what might have attracted her to Hemingway.
1: Yeah. And of course he was drop dead handsome. He was like a movie star. And I think that had something to do with it too. And a magnetic person that everybody was drawn to. So I think it was just, she fell madly in love with him. And as you say, she he was the ticket to get up, but that wasn't the main impetus. I think she just fell deeply, madly in love with this very dynamic, ambitious, handsome young man.
0: And what attracted her to him?
1: Her red hair, you know, what attracts a man to a woman? I think he, he loved the-
0: Well, where do I start, Joya? Oh, <laughs> um, it was a rhetorical question. Sorry yeah. about that.
1: You know, he loved the way she looked. He, he admired her piano playing. She was incredibly intelligent. She believed in him, too. That was another thing that was important. I think he recognized her as the yeah. wife that was necessary to his art.
0: You know, you mentioned her her piano playing, and when I read your book, the I was really astounded at how much importance her piano playing has over the course of her life. Maybe you could discuss that a, l- a little bit. What was the role of music in her life? Because we obviously know that Hemingway's mother uh, also was a piano teacher and a piano player.
1: Right. And of course, this was, we're talking about, you know, the early 1900s. So a lot of people played the piano, but she had real talent. She worked at it. She didn't work at it probably as much as, as she could have, but she certainly was good enough that had she worked at it, had she been ambitious, she probably could have had some kind of a career. But it was, she continued to play throughout her life. And when they were in Paris, he arranged to have a piano, an upright piano moved into their extremely tiny flat, so that she could practice. And at one point also, there was a piano somewhere around the corner, and she would go there and practice also.
0: So is it part of her, what you call her passivity, that she didn't pursue this more aggressively? I mean, Hemingway was hell-bent on becoming a great writer and a famous writer and making a career of it. Is it like an interesting parallel that Hadley just did not have that level of Let's say self confidence, where she would do that for herself,
1: right? And she didn't; she wasn't ambitious, which I don't think is a sin at all. Mm. I think that she just was not; she didn't have that same drive that he had. That I don't think she ever would have, even if she had been born in a different era. I just think she was not a very; she wasn't a very ambitious person, which I think is totally okay. Right, (laughs) (laughs) everybody has to be ambitious and want to change the world.
0: Right. But going back to what you were just saying, you know, if her mother had told her that she was the greatest piano player in the world, or she was destined to become the greatest one wonders if she would have had a little bit more, I think the episode that I'm, is kind of stuck in my head from your book is that there was this little concert arranged for her in Paris. And it was, you know, not, it's not at some great arena. It was just a little uh, thing. And she essentially got stage fright. At, do you, Can you fill in the the details? Yeah, in?
1: that story came from Julia Child. One advantage that I had in writing this book so long ago was that people were still alive. Yeah. So I actually was able to interview people who knew them. And so the connection was not very far apart. I knew people who knew Ernest Hemingway and Hadley Richardson and saw them together and saw them interacting and interacted them with them themselves, which was an incredible gift uh, for me, for a writer. You couldn't write the book today. You couldn't research it the way that I was able to. Yeah, she was, it was unclear exactly what happened, whether he had pushed her into having the concert and she didn't want to do it. And then she backed out or whether, She went along with it happily and eagerly and then backed out. That is all very, very unclear. But it was the only incident where she had been scheduled to perform publicly and didn't.
0: Yeah. Seems like such a shame. Did you say that Julia Child was your source on that? Like the Julia Child?
1: Yeah, the Julia Child. Because What is
0: the connection there?
1: um, Her husband, Paul Child, knew the Hemingways. And the story came from
0: him, I think. So. That's great. That, that's that's fantastic. So there's one other thing that you you mentioned in your previous response that I'd like to pin down and then we'll we'll move on to Paris. You were saying that you as part of your research, you were able to listen to the tapes. Yes. And it seems like uh maybe we can talk about Alice Sokolov and what you had access to as a researcher that allowed this book to come alive and Hadley to literally speak for herself.
1: So Alice, who was also a pianist, and she knew Hadley in New Hampshire. They were friends, and they used to get together to play four-hand piano, the two pianos they'd each play. And at one point, Alice wanted to write a book about Hadley. Alice wasn't really a writer. She was, I think, mostly a musician. Um, I don't know. Forgive me, Alice, if you can be saying that wherever you are, if that's not how you feel about yourself. But I I got the sense that she really really was more of a musician than a writer. Anyway, she wanted to write a book about Hadley, and so she taped her. And the the book was published, the first Mrs. Hemingway. It's very, you, you probably have read it. It's very short. It's like 90 pages and very thin. And Hadley was still alive when it was published, and so... Alice did not include a lot of the things that Hadley talked about because she thought they would be offensive to Hadley. Hadley may have even in fact told her, I don't want you wow. to do that in your book. So there was a lot of material in the tapes that Hadley, that um, Alice didn't use at all. And so, and she told me this when I went to talk to her, I think that her book had been published probably uh, maybe 15 years, um, about 15 or 18 years previous to my meeting Alice. But anyway, when I saw that she'd written this book and read it, I contacted her. I was living in New York at the time and she was living in outside of Manhattan. We were in Manhattan and I went to see her. And at the end of our, we had a really nice time. She was, I was, you know, 30, whatever. And she was my age now. (laughs) And um she said, well, I have something for you. And she went in the back room and she came out with the tapes and she gave them to me.
0: How so many were there?
1: I, it was a box full of them. I can't remember how many they were. So
0: hours and hours and hours of...
1: They're now at the JFK Live. Yes. And they were really scratchy and sometimes difficult to hear. But I spent, I just stayed up forever transcribing them. I was you know, riveted by them. And they were great. It was indeed, as you said, like Hadley. My subject was speaking to me from beyond the grave. It was a gold mine for a, a
0: gold. What researcher wouldn't love that? A box of such <laughs> material. That is, and you. I mean, you quote her generously, and you you really al- allow her to tell her own story, and you're you're kind of guiding it through. At every, it's almost like uh, whether this is Hadley's generosity or Alice guiding her through it. she seems to have a comment about just about every significant episode in her in her life with with Hemingway.
1: right right and she still was very upset about a lot of the things that had happened in their relationship and and yet she'd had a happy second marriage. And a lot of time had passed and things had not turned out well for Hemingway at all. And I think she was very saddened by his suicide. Very, very sad. And of course they had a child together. Right. And so it was a very point. It was very, a very moving experience for me to listen to the tapes. And I think it was probably very moving and, Difficult for Hadley to talk about some of those things, but she did. She talked very, very openly about everything, including their sex life, which <laughs> was rather astounding.
0: It was astounding that she talked about it, or it was astounding what she said.
1: I uh, well, I thought it was rather astounding that she that she was so open about some mm. very private things about their drinking and about their sex life. And um,
0: you you quote her as saying, "We drank like fishes."
1: Right. Right. And they threw up together. They used to throw up together. And, uh, and in fact, you know, well, it was during, they were in Paris, but it was during Prohibition in the United States when Prohibition, when drinking was never more glorified as it was during Prohibition. And I think a lot of women thought of getting drunk as part of their new independence. The, the New Yorker writer, Lois Long, who used to, who wrote a column called Lipstick, about nightlife in New York in the twenties. The New Yorker, I think, was founded. The first issue was like in 1924 and 1925. And she was this young woman who was sent out every night to report on the speakeasies and what the activities among the flappers, basically. And she got, used to get so drunk, she would go back to the office and throw up also as if, as if that's something that's cool or right. fun or healthy or, It it was a thing that people did, and that's what Ernest and Hadley did. They didn't – they just – they thought that drinking – he thought that drinking was going to enhance his creativity, and she was going along with it. It was just part of the zeitgeist. Right. Now today, it looks – it just looks sick.
0: (laughs) It sure does. Yeah. And uh, let me also say, in addition to those tapes, there's – correspondence that you also had access to they because they were apart when they were first uh seeing each other in america there were loads of letters and it seems like you had access to virtually all of hadley's letters
1: yes the the letters have been found by jack hemingway after his mother died and he had given them to the jfk library so, in the eight in the eighties, like right after right before I started working on my book, there were there were like a shelf full of Hemingway biographies that had come out and but the the letters no the the male writers of the Hemingway biographies had not paid too much attention to the Hadley's letters because they just didn't think that she was important. The marriage only lasted five years. he left her. And, of course, Carlos Baker, who was pretty much still considered the reigning Hemingway biographer, he didn't have access to any of them. But I had the full – they're still in my basement. I still have copies of all the letters um, in a huge steamer trunk all dated.
0: So what emerges from those letters about Hadley as a writer and what was her mindset during that time?
1: She was a beautiful writer, and I was just – bowled over by how so many of her phrases showed up in his fiction and I, it became very obvious to me in reading the letters that she was the model for the Hemingway heroine and that she stayed the model for the Hemingway heroine throughout his career. And she, she was everything that the Hemingway heroine was. Sexy, but kind of passive. Beautiful, gentle, smart, literary—all those qualities. And she talked like a Hemingway heroine, or rather, a Hemingway heroine talked like Hadley.
0: Right. So, like Catherine Barkley, for instance.
1: I want what and, you want.
0: Ah, uh, right.
1: It's very, it's very romantic. It may not. It, it seemed romantic to me then. It seems, still seems romantic to me now again it might seem that she's not independent enough for modern for today's young women they might they might see it as her subsuming her personality in his but
0: yeah you uh, Joya you point out that not only does did Hadley say I want what you want but actually I'm you, you're me. we're the same we're we're two of this you know two parts of the same, which you see in plenty of Hemingway's fiction. They're so aligned, they're so even codependent that they're their part, which of course would make any rupture of that uh, devastating
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, inevitably. so maybe the way we can start talking or continue talking about the Paris years is that you started the our discussion by talking about you reading a movable feast as a way to sort of excite you to this concept is the hadley from a movable feast at all like the hadley that you found uh, who li- who actually lived in paris the real person how is the representation different from reality
1: i think she's very similar the hadley of a movable feast is probably idealized somewhat but they're they're pretty similar In, in their romanticism, their literary intelligence, their love for their partner, their willingness to go, to be, to go along with what the partner wanted. So I think they are, they are very, very similar. But of course, he was writing it from the perspective of a lot of troubles in his life and alcoholism, and he was on his fourth wife, and so he's looking back at his first marriage through uh, rose-colored glasses for sure.
0: Yeah, and this is something Hadley would have been able to read and see her own life depicted in a movable feast, and do we know her response to a movable feast?
1: I was very flattered by it, I think.
0: Back after this. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. This episode is brought to you by Darla Warden's Cockeyed Happy. Darla Warden, of course, a previous guest of One True Podcast, and her book, Cock Eyed Happy, Ernest Hemingway's Wyoming Summers with Pauline, just out in paperback. It is a book that reveals the little-known tale of Hemingway's time in Wyoming from 1928 to 1939. It chronicles the highs and lows of his Wild West adventures with second wife Pauline Pfeiffer. Cockeyed Happy is available wherever books are sold. For more information, please visit DarlaWarden.com Darla, W-O-R-D-E-N dot com So, when they're in Paris together, one of the most uh, let's say notable things that happens is which of course gets great Attention in the movable feast is the loss of the manuscripts, uh, which is something that also pops up on this podcast quite quite a lot. Can you tell the story of the manuscripts uh, and what that meant to Hadley and their relationship?
1: Yeah, that was the beginning of the end. It was really it was really stupid of her to pack everything. The the you know it's not like today. Well, I guess it would be the equivalent today of not backing up your work and having power outage and losing everything. She. He was at a conference in Lausanne, Switzerland. And there's some... Jack Hemingway told me when when I spent time with him that he was told about this episode a lot in his life. And he was always told that his father asked his mother to bring the manuscripts. So, you know, I think some scholars think, oh, it was just Hadley taking it upon herself to gather up the manuscripts. According to Jack, who I think is a pretty good source on something like this, Hemingway asked her specifically to bring the manuscripts, which made sense because he wanted to show them to famous people like the journalist Lincoln Steffens, and they were going to go on to Italy, and he wanted to work on, him, on it while, he was, while they were in Italy. And her mistake, though, was to pack the carbons, as I said. And she packed everything in the, in a valise and went to the, um, what was it, the Gardenault? Um, and put this valise up on the luggage rack and went out to buy water and um, came back and it was gone. And that was a terrible tragedy. Maybe it wasn't if we had the, Contents of the valise and could judge it. Maybe it wasn't a tragedy. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe it should have been. Maybe Hemingway would have abandoned the work that was in there. But in any case, he was devastated by it. And she was devastated by it. And it's been a source of discussion among literary scholars ever since.
0: If I can read what you, the way you phrased it in your book, <laughs> you write it can't be denied. That the loss of the manuscripts was the beginning of the end for Hadley and Ernest. The perfection of the Hemingway's happiness was tainted by the loss, and things were never quite the same again. And I guess what I was thinking about as a reader, or what what, what I often think about when uh, the manuscripts comes up as a topic, is: is it necessarily true that this sort of really unfortunate mishap? would have to cripple a relationship.
1: I don't I don't know, but I don't think, I mean, you know, we were talking before about her being passive aggressive, and I don't think this was some unconscious effort to get rid of the work that was taking him away from her at all.
0: But that is what some people even assert, right? Yeah. That you would lose it on, you couldn't do this type of thing totally accidentally. You don't buy that.
1: you don't buy that. She was capable of, similar things but nothing of that consequence he gave her a beaded handbag once it was used and had some beads missing and she accidentally on purpose dropped it in the water when they were out in a canoe or rowboat or something
0: accidentally on purpose right
1: i don't think this was some deep-seated desire to destroy his work because in every other way she had been so completely supportive of him i just think it was a terrible terrible mistake and i think You know, had they had their relationship not been on the verge of being put asunder by other forces, it might have survived, but then too many other things happened soon after that.
0: Joya, you also suggest that the Sokolov tapes reveals that Hadley was upset about the loss of the manuscripts decades after it happened, like she almost still couldn't talk about it. Is that, yes. she was filled with emotion about it.
1: Right. She cried when it came up. So it was something. And Hemingway, I think maybe there was one story that he still had and the novel that he was working on. I don't know if it was any good. Nobody knows if it was any good. So maybe, he maybe it wasn't so terrible. Maybe, maybe none of that stuff would have ended up getting published. I don't know. It's impossible to know. I think Hemingway, Hemingway went on to do such great things so quickly after that that I don't, I don't think that he really held it against her. I don't think that was the reason that he took up with Pauline at all.
0: Well, it couldn't have been about the substance of what was in the valise. It seemed more about the concept of either the carelessness or the or the the blame that grew to outsized importance in in Hemingway's life.
1: Right, and it was a symptom, maybe, of she wasn't a fitting partner for a major writer. That you know, woman, a woman who really was a suitable partner for somebody like Hemingway would not have been so careless.
0: Yeah. The thumb drive is, is such an important thing. I can't believe she didn't, she didn't know about that. Um, uh, you know, th- another thing that you connect and, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Pauline, the, the description of Hadley's behavior around Pauline to me as a reader. And you'll have to, you know, uh, correct me. It doesn't even seem w- weird, uh, retroactively. It seems like she's almost courting this type of intimacy with another woman in other words she's there they're around the three of them and it's it's just always Pauline is always included for a great um a great stretch of time and so they have these kinds of intense experiences together and it just seems like i you know you, you kind of sit back and wonder what Hadley was thinking or what she was getting at
1: and Jenny Pauline's sister was involved. And Jenny Jenny was a lesbian who went on to um have a long affair with Aldous Huxley's wife. Um and you know, I think they were just all a group of friends. And Hemingway, as Hadley talks about on the tapes, there were always women swirling around him. And he loved the, the attention of women and liked to be the center. Of attention always so she probably gotten used to him having women being gaga over him
0: so she was too close to it and she couldn't see how pauline sort of insinuated herself more and more with each passing week or month
1: yeah and maybe she'd never thought that maybe she didn't think pauline was his type maybe she didn't think that Maybe she didn't see what was going on. I don't think it's that unusual for a woman to be blind to her husband having an affair or even being interested in another woman.
0: The trait that we've established with Hadley was passivity. And that could have been her undoing because Pauline was, was not passive.
1: Right, exactly. Pauline was very much the opposite of passive.
0: Is there also something to the notion that, okay, so now we're going, uh, we're in the mid 1920s and a little bit in the later 1920s? Hemingway was looking for something, these sort of the pendulum. So Hadley was maybe more um, matronly, more deferential. And now he was looking for someone a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, just somebody, uh, Pauline fit the bill according to what Hemingway. Uh, imagined. Is there anything to that?
1: Yeah, I do do think so. She was glamorous and rich, and she fit into that world that he was becoming the center of. The the Murphys, for example, Gerald and Sarah Murphy, who didn't, not that they didn't like Hadley, but, you know, Hadley was a country bumpkin to them compared to, as you say, the sophisticated Pauline. So I think that that there was very much a sense that Hemingway was going places. He was becoming this famous writer and he had this wife who was just not interesting or sophisticated enough for him. Who couldn't really keep up with him. So he was, and he taught, writes about that in the movable feast about the pilot fish uh, who, you know, steer steer, who steered him away from, from Hadley.
0: So there's another little episode in this, at this moment in their relationship that, to me is bewildering, and I've admitted that on this podcast many times is the one hundred day agreement where, when I got to that part in your book, I said, Okay, well, maybe Joya will make this logical for me, and it never makes sense to me what can can we can you explain what the hundred day pact was and explain to me further why it makes sense?
1: Well, I don't really think it makes sense either okay. But (laughs) once, once she discovered this affair that her husband was having with Pauline, she, and she, on the tapes, she says, wasn't that silly of me. So in retrospect, she, she knew that it was not a smart thing to do and felt, felt that it, and was embarrassed, I think, at having done it. But she, she agreed to give Hemingway a divorce if he, if he, if he agreed to stay apart from Pauline for a hundred days. And I think she did that. As a last-ditch effort to save her marriage, kind of thinking, "Oh, he's just this will blow over. He'll forget about it after. If he doesn't see her, he'll forget about her and come back to me." Um, but it didn't work, of course.
0: In in fact, it might have even backfired, right? It yeah. made it more made the longing more intense,
1: right? Right. And,
0: and it it was called off what halfway about halfway through?
1: Yeah, about halfway through. I think also Hadley knew that he still loved her. She knew that he still he still cared about her, so I think she was hoping maybe at that point that he would come back to her.
0: Yeah, it would. Um, The I want I wanted to talk a a little bit about Hadley's post Hemingway life, but before I do, um, I I, the great work that Hemingway was doing was The Sun Also Rises. And the conspicuous thing for Hadley's fans, and it must have been conspicuous for Hadley too, is that she she, uh, it's a Romana clay, and the only thing really missing is Hadley. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: so she's written out of that novel. Um, What do you make of that?
1: Well, she talks about, on the tapes, on the Sokolov tapes, she talks about how shocked she was when she read The Sun Also Rises and saw that she had been written out of it as if he was right.
0: She was in the manuscript, right? She was in the first draft. Uh, she's at least in the start of it, right?
1: But no, she'd been... Well, the manuscript that went to press, she's written out of completely. Right, right, right. She was shocked about that. Really shocked and hurt, of course. And it, she felt as if she had been written out of his life. And I think he had was. He was writing her out of his life.
0: Right. And so... Uh, this great work, and all their friends are in it, and she is not. Um, but you have to say, maybe it was a shrewd artistic choice
1: to leave her out of it. Have you re- have you read it recently?
0: The Sun Rises, I have actually. Why do you say?
1: The anti-Semitism I find very hard to take in it. It's a mean-spirited book, I find now, and maybe I'm colored by his writing Hadley out of it too. And the, mostly the anti Semitism.
0: It's there, right? The anti Semitism is there. And uh, reading The Sun Also Rises through 21st century eyes is quite, is certainly quite interesting.
1: But as you say, artistically, where would she have fit in? You
0: know? Yeah, the tension of not being in a, a healthy, Settled relationship actually was the was a driving point of, of Jake Barnes as as the character. So the Son Also rises also leads to one of the most celebrated alimony agreements, right? right? In uh, did how did that work out contractually? How um, so? He gives all the the royalties of the Son Also rises to Hadley as part of the divorce agreement. Did that continue for
1: I think it
0: in, did. Per, in perpetuity?
1: I think it did. I think it did, and then it went to Jack, of course, and Jack's family.
0: So she did at least have a payoff from it. Yeah, ironically, even though she didn't appear in it.
1: Right, and she she took it and was happy to
0: have it. She deserved it. Well, you mentioned Jack, and Jack appears quite frequently in in your book. Uh, What about Hadley as a as a mom? He
1: adored her, so that we have to consider as. The last word, I think, on how she was as a mom. He adored his mother. But she was not a mother in the modern sense of a mother who was constantly attentive towards her child. Jack Hemingway went to boarding school when he was like seven years old. And, you know, who today would send their child to boarding school at seven years old? So they, they spent, they didn't spend all their time together. He was, shunted back and forth between the two households. He also was very, very fond of Pauline. And um Pauline and Hadley were able to work things out about Jack and in a, in a satisfying way for both of them and for Jack
0: too. So Jack and Hadley had a healthy, loving relationship even into adulthood yes. for Jack.
1: Yes, yeah it's not like I am with my, like I was with my son or I'm sure you are with your children. It wasn't very hands-on in the sense that, you know, when your child is in boarding school on a different continent and he's only eight.
0: Right. Well, Um, I, I think the way you, you put it in your book is that oftentimes Hadley was busy mothering Ernest. You know, that was really the source of her attention and, and Jack, Jack would have to sometimes come second to that,
1: but he was course, little when they split up too.
0: That's another thing, Joya, to go back to almost where we started is you wonder about Hadley as a mother. If is that a sign of the times? Is just that being a mother in the nineteen twenties means something different, or was this Hadley in in particular? You know, when we we had um, we uh, we had Darla Warden on to talk about Pauline, and you know there great stretches of time where Pauline and Ernest would send their their kids out, off for to other people for months at a time. Right. And you just don't see that that much these days.
1: No. And yeah, I think it was part of being a parent in the 20s in a certain social set.
0: When Hadley transitions to Paul Maurer for uh, and remarries, it, it doesn't seem like there's that Hemingway has a kind of a resentment or tension. Hemingway knew the man, didn't he?
1: Yes, he was a journalist. so he didn't feel threatened about him as, as a writer because he was a journalist, so that didn't quite count as a real
0: writer. Was this a successful second marriage?
1: Very successful. They were very happy together. Paul, I think, he, he became exasperated when people would ask Hadley about Hemingway. And she talks about that on the paper also
0: understandably right
1: right <laughs> they fished they also drank like fishes and uh lived in new hampshire and had a very nice life
0: was paul kind of the anti-earnest in the way that pauline might have been uh different than hadley
1: yeah i think he i don't really know that much about him except that people loved him and he was a great guy and a smart guy He wrote poetry, and at one point was the poet laureate of New Hampshire, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. And he was very proud of his poetry, which I don't think was all that great. But, you know, and certainly when you compare Paul Maurer as a poet to Hemingway as a short writer or novelist, there's no real comparison.
0: Maybe we could compare him as a poet to Hemingway as a poet, and then it wouldn't be so bad. So, to take this conversation as a whole, and i'm I'm always interested ab- about this as, uh, when it comes to a biography, is do your does this biography have a thesis or like a central takeaway, some argument that you're making? and the the reason I ask such a uh, a leading question is because the subtitle of your book, it's Paris without End: The True Story of Hemingway's first wife. So was it a kind of, was your book in a way a corrective?
1: I don't think so. The, the, the first title was just Hadley. And um, the editor at Harper, my editor at HarperCollins wanted to put a new title on which I agreed with completely. I don't ever go into things with a thesis but I always try to keep in mind what my book is about. And I even say this to my students, what is your story, article, book about? I think it's really useful to be able to have an idea of something in your head as the through line so that you don't lose sight of it and get lost in the weeds and spin your wheels. I once heard an interview with Francis Ford Coppola in which he talked about Whenever he got waylaid during the filming of The Godfather and thought that scenes weren't working, he tried to go back to his one-word idea of of what the through line was. And if the scene was not fitting in with that, he would cut the scene or he would understand then why the scene wasn't working. So The Godfather was not about... Power, it wasn't about money, it wasn't about violence, it was about succession. So that every scene had to comport with Hmm. succession. So I think my book is about love. So everything in it is about finding love, losing love, negotiating your way through love, what happens when it's gone. So I think that's what it's about.
0: Joya Diliberto, author of Paris Without End, The True Story of Hemingway's First Wife. It was so great to have you on and to talk with you about Hadley. Thank you so much.
1: It was a great pleasure.
0: And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This year, we are also reading A Farewell to Arms over on our Patreon site, so please join us for a chapter-by-chapter discussion at patreon.com slash podcast to be part of our book club and also support what we do. We also have a book called One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art from Godine, which was edited by Michael Von Cannon and me. Uh, In that book, we present some of our favorite One True Sentence episodes. It's a beautiful book, and we hope you'll enjoy it. This show is a production of the Hemingway Society and is supported by the English Department at the University of Evansville, as well as Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast.